Amen. Your, your cares are his concerns. That's for sure. Encore performance. All right. I can't sing, so we're in trouble. <laughs> we're going to be in the book of Ruth, Lord willing. You know, if anything, this COVID stuff has taught me, it is that I need to say uh, the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, because uh, my plans may not be his plans. I will say this, I was planning to do the book of Hebrews on Sunday morning and go through, we're doing it on Wednesday night, so I hope you'll join us for that. And, uh, and that was my full intention. And I want you to know, when I choose to preach for this church, I don't just flip a coin. And, you know, there's a lot of prayer that goes into it, and I've asked you to pray for me. And, uh, and I want you to continue to do that, that I'll grow in my understanding and communication and that kind of thing. But Monday, as I was in the office, I was uh, just kind of at a loss. Feel, I felt like I was frustrated in my, some of my preparation. And uh, I, I read the book of Ruth. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've read through it, but I never preached through the book of Ruth. I never preached from the book of Ruth, believe it or not. And as I began to read it, just like God just began to get a hold of me, and I just couldn't get away from it. And uh, I found myself at the end of the book sobbing. It just, it moved me deeply. And, and I believe that if you'll take this to heart, this might be a month that changes your life. Uh, you can read the book of Ruth in one sitting. It's only 85 verses total. Four little chapters. You can read it through. And so what I encourage you to do as a church, us to do, is to read it at least once a week. You can do that over a cup of coffee. You and your spouse and your children. Read it for, uh, like I say, about 20 minutes. And, it's, uh, and every time you'll read it, you'll, you'll see something different, I believe. And as we go through it, I want you to keep in mind a few things. Number one, <clears throat> it's the historical level. You know, this, this literally, this, this really happened. These characters are not fictional. They're, it's not an allegory. It's not a simile. It, these are real people. These are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Uh, this book of Ruth, uh, it's the reason that David's, you know, keeping the sheep in the sheepfold. It's the reason that the city of Bethlehem is called the city of David. It's the reason that the angels appear to the shepherds. You know, Bethlehem looms large in the book of Ruth. And it's, these are historical. So you have the literal historical level, and we'll go through that. And then what we have is the exegetical level, the exegesis of the passage. And that is, uh, what is the text saying? And, uh, and then we get to the exposition. What does it mean? And there's a few terms in the book of Ruth that may, we may not be familiar with. And that's what I'll mostly use PowerPoint for, is the terms that we might not be familiar with. Because I don't want this to feel like a lecture, because this is just a beautiful story. It's an elegant story. Uh, one thing, we sang about it this morning, the kinsman redeemer. Big, big, big deal. The, uh, the near kinsman redeemer. We'll unpack, unpack that in subsequent weeks. Uh, also, the leveret marriage. We'll kind of skim that this morning. What's that all about? And then the law of gleaning. It's kind of God's welfare uh, system in those days. The law of gleaning. And by the way, even those who were uh, on that welfare system, they had to go gather stuff. So it wasn't just sit back and, and get a check. You know, they had to go out and, and glean uh, in the fields. And so we'll talk about that in the historical context. But uh, 
think it might be best at this point for me to just open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word of God. I pray as we get into the book uh, of, of uh, Ruth that you would just open our eyes of, of our understanding. And I ask for your help, Lord. I, I just I can't do anything without you, Lord. And I just I pray you guide us. I pray that this, this month, God, and who knows what this month holds, but uh, if I'm able to preach through this book, um, that you would just bless us in our time. And I pray for each one here. We're all at different places, Lord. There may be some here who are discouraged. There may be some who are weary. Maybe some who are bitter like Naomi. Maybe some who are uh, in the role of a caretaker like Ruth. Maybe some in the role of uh, uh, outside of relationship with you altogether, God. Maybe there's someone here who's walked away from you, Lord. They've, they've, they've gone in the wrong direction, but God, may you use this to turn them around. And all it takes is just one step back towards you, Lord. And and we know that you love us. And so I ask you to do your work, Lord, and help me to stay out of the way. Praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message this morning from Ruth chapter 1 is Bitter in Bethlehem. Bitter in Bethlehem. I'm going to start reading. I'm going to stop after, the, uh, after verse 5. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Ruth, by the way, is right after Judges. This story occurs during the period of the judges. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was, and I'm going to pronounce it the way the Hebrew is, is Elimelech. Elimelech. We, we will we'll Americanize it, call it Elimelech, but it, the Hebrew is Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Machlon and Kilion died also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. And I'll stop there. So at this point, we have one famine, three funerals, and three widows. That sounds like the making of a great story, doesn't it? A beautiful story is about to unfold, but we don't have a clue from the first few verses of Scripture here. Now it says, let's go to the first slide, if you will. It says that it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now, the judges, the period of judges was a unique period of time. And it can be summarized by the last verse of the book of Judges. Verses 21, uh, Judges 21, verse 25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel... And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? The period of the judges was a time of civil war, uh, racial tensions, a time of uh, difficulty, incursions from their enemies. It was a time of moral relativism. Everybody just set their own standard as to what was right and wrong. 
And, and I was watching the news last night, and I'm not going to get real political here. I'm going to move on quickly from this. But I was watching the news last night, and all over our country, they were holding rallies. And they were called reproductive right rallies. And basically, women and men were marching in the streets demanding the right to kill their unborn babies in response to a law Texas passed that at six weeks... You can't abort that baby. There's a heartbeat. Because it's not just a fetus, it's a person. Everybody in here at one time started out that same way. We all started out that way. And, and as we hear about uh, government mandates to, uh, to mandate certain uh, health things that I feel should be a personal choice and decision of the individual... And yet our government says when it comes to that, it's not my body or my choice. But yet we march in the streets demanding the rights to, to have reproductive rights, a.k.a. kill our babies, infanticide. And it's a wicked thing. That's what we call doing what is right in our own eyes. It's hypocrisy. But, but the good news is, even though this is the backdrop of the story, like the period of the judges... This story, Ruth and Naomi, is a contrast to the, what's going on in the period of the judges. So that tells me that even though things are going haywire in the world, and they are, God still has a remnant. He always has a remnant people. And we don't have to compromise. We don't have to be, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We can be a light in a dark world. We can be a city, a beacon, a lighthouse set on a hill. So we read this book on the literal level. It's a historical fact. Uh, the exegesis, what does it say? The exposition, what does it mean? But then there's also the homiletic. What does it, how does it apply to me? That's always the challenge of the preacher. Is how do I take something like this and, and make it apply to you and me? And I'm going to tell you, this book will apply to you and I. We'll find ourselves somewhere in the story. We will. We'll identify with maybe some or all of these characters before it's over with. Now, ironically enough, there's a famine here in the place called Bethlehem. Lehem means bread. Beth is house, house of bread. The place, the city of David, the place where Jesus Christ was born. There's bread supposedly in Bethlehem, and there would be bread, bread in Bethlehem uh, sometime later. Jesus Christ, one of those great I am statements, he would say, I am the bread of life. Bethlehem is large here, but there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Now, you and I, I, I can say this with a fairly certain degree of confidence, we know nothing of famine. Now, I like to drink those little V8 juice thingies, little tomato juices. And I haven't been able to find those things in the store for six months. And I've been real torqued out about it. Because I like to start my day with a V8. I know you can pour it. I, you know, they still got the big containers. But I like having it measured out for me. I can just drink that little can and get my serving of vegetables for the day. And throw that thing away. But I haven't been able to find it. But you know what? That's not a famine. We say things like, well, I'm starving. We don't know what it is to starve. We know nothing of it. We're so blessed. When was the last time you went through the grocery store? Now, I'm going to convict you here this morning, and I'm going to convict this guy here too. 
When was the last time you walked through the grocery store and you said, God, thank you that there's food in here? Because God provides everything that we have. Every, every morsel of food that we have comes from the hand of God. Everything that we have. But we're upset, aren't we? Because we can't get what we want. And I know it's inconvenient, but, but thank God for that we, we really don't know much about famine here. But there are places that do. And people that do know what it is to not know where their next meal is coming from. And that's where the people of Israel have found themselves. Interesting, the house of bread, there's a famine there. Why is there a famine there? Well, if, you know, if you've read about the book of Judges, by the way, I read it yesterday just to kind of refresh my memory. The book of Judges, there were not many highlights there. And even the guys that were heroes were kind of deeply flawed. Samson, I mean, he was an example of moral failure. Look at him. And Jephthah made a rash vow uh, concerning his daughter. Gideon, uh, he was a mighty man of valor. But then he had this ephod that became a, a, a symbol of worship or veneration later on. It became a snare later on. So, so even the highlights, you know, are, are not super high. But this story stands as a backdrop to that. Now, notice it says that uh, he was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, this is differentiated because there's a Bethlehem Zebulon. It's mentioned in the book of Joshua. That's why it says Bethlehem, Judah here. This is the Judah that we know, the house of bread where Jesus was born and, and, and David and all, and all that. Now, notice it says he went to sojourn in the King James. I think some other translations may say to dwell, but I, I like the King James rendering here. Because to sojourn, it, it intimates that this was only going to be temporary. Uh, the word sojourner means a resident alien. He was in there, but not really one of them. Okay? Now, if you read the commentaries, they will just pulverize Elimelech for going to Moab. They'll pulverize him. Um, but, but listen, as a father, if my family is starving... I mean, I'm probably going to do what I have to do to make sure my family eats, right? I mean, the Bible says, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. And so uh, I'm probably going to do what I, what I can to help my family. And it says he went to just sojourn there. So it was never intended to be temporary. The problem we see, though, is what happens with so many of us is when we make a decision... <laughs> To sojourn in Moab, we end up being residents of Moab. We read that they stayed there for 10 years. So that plan kind of changed. Reminds me of Lot. You know, Lot was Abraham's nephew. <laughs> Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom to begin with. But if you flip on through the story, then Lot's the mayor of Sodom or, some, you know, some equivalent. He's, he, he's a citizen. He's a resident of of Sodom and the angels have to drag him out kicking and screaming even with God's judgment uh, impending he's a temporary resident now they went to Moab let's go to the next slide please Moab now Moab has a real horrible beginning Moab started in a cave in Zoar with Abraham's nephew who happens to be Lot Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. And the product of that was the Moabite people. They're a pro they, their beginning was with a, a, gross, a grotesque sin. Lot and his daughter have this child. 
Moab, and the other one was the Ammonites, Ammon. Now, I didn't put this on the slide, but Moab is not just uh, known for their immorality. They were also known for idolatry. The god of Moab is this guy named Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H. And we find even Solomon <clears throat> over in 1 Kings 11, that Solomon, he married Moabite women, and he, he ended up building a, a worship area for Chemosh. Interestingly enough, one of the... Uh, Characteristics of Kamash was that he demanded human sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? The abortion of babies. That was a hallmark of Kamash worship. Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> now, Deuteronomy 23 provides some further context for us. The Bible says an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. Even to their tenth generation. Now, I'm not sure if this is intended to be a finite number or if it's like hyperbole. You know, if God's like saying, I don't want these guys in, in your midst. Okay. So I'm not sure that the ten is a hard and fast number here, but it might be. But nevertheless, ten generations is a long time. <laughs> right? It's about, what, a thousand years or so. But... <clears throat> Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter the congregation of the Lord forever. Okay, so that leads me to believe it's, you know, God's not given a, a limit, finite number here. Because they met you not with bread and water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And what do they, they do? They hired this prophet, uh, this prophet for hire named Balaam or Balaam to come curse Israel. And he was not able to do it. And uh, nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam. Because you can't curse what God's blessed. I'm not worried about somebody putting a curse on me. Sometimes I wonder if somebody's got a voodoo doll <laughs> with my head on it somewhere. And if you do, please stop sticking pins in it. Because God's not going to bless you for that. All right. Uh, but and he turned a curse into a blessing because the Lord thy God loved thee. <laughs> but notice it says, You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity. prosperity. How long? Forever. Don't have anything to do with Moabites, right? Moabites are off limit. They had a bad beginning. They had a bad middle. They had a bad ending. Notice what it says in Psalm 60, verse 8. God says, Moab is my wash pot. Now, what J. Vernon McGee says, he, and he had this really nice way of saying things if you've ever listened to J. Vernon McGee. And he said, he, he said, Moab is my wash pot. Basically, he was saying that Moab was his trash can. <laughs> so that's what God thinks about Moab. It's a, it's a waste basket. It's worthless. And this is where, this is where Elimelech says, I'm going to take my family. Harmless enough, right? And I'm sure just like we do, we rationalize. Well, God doesn't understand. I'm just going to be there a little while, and my family needs to eat. And so we'll get in, we'll get out, and we'll go back. Problem is, he never got the chance to. Notice the end of verse 2. Uh, it says he was going to be a sojourner, but at the end of verse 2, it says he continued there. He stayed. The temporary became permanent. Let's go to the next slide. Got all these names here. And apparently the writer of Ruth, and we don't know if it's Samuel or who it is. I know the Holy Spirit wrote it for sure. There's some names, and let's go through it. Elimelech means my God is king. Which is ironic because there's no king in Israel and every man's doing what's right in their own eyes. 
But Elimelech, his name means God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Now, interestingly enough, uh, this is also a name for Israel, the pleasant land. So that hints to us, and I'll get to this later on, not today. This hints to us that Naomi somehow is idiomatic of Israel. And Naomi is, excuse me, Naomi is idiomatic of Israel. And Ruth, symbolic of the church. And we'll talk about that as we go. Mara means bitter. We'll get to that in a moment. Mahlan means sickly. How'd you like to go through life with that handle? You know, when I was a kid, I was not very athletic, and I know that shocks some of you. <laughs> Judging by my physique these days. But, you know, I, I was always the last one to get picked when they were playing kickball. You know, you're like, I'll take this guy, I'll take this guy. And they're like, I'll take sickly. <laughs> Machlan. I got a great blind date for you. His name is Sickly, but I'm sure he'll show you a great time. Machlan, Sickly. And Kilion is not much better. His name means wasting or pining away. And by the way, these were actually common names during that time. And a lot of this had to do with their, the situations, uh, circumstances of their birth. Maybe they were sickly at birth or child, whatever. Uh, Orpah, her name means neck, uh, and it may not have a co negative connotation to it. It also could mean gazelle, a graceful animal. Neck or firmus. Ruth means friendship, and she certainly lived up to that. We see Lord capitalized. That's yod heh vav -Heh, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh. And then interestingly, we have the title for God Almighty, which is the Hebrew word Shaddai. Okay. Now, Elimelech, the husband died, and, and she was left of her two sons. Now, the next thing they do in verse 4 is they took wives of Moab. Were they supposed to do that? Nope. No. And you get the impression from reading the text that there's a cause and effect relationship with the hardships that are going on in their lives. It's very apparent. They took wives of the women of Moab. And the name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there ten years. And Machlon and Kilion died also of both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So this is a pretty sad story at this point. You got famine in the land. They're in a strange land with a strange God being worshipped. They're not worshipping Shamash, Kamash. But they're there sticking out like a sore thumb. And now these women are destitute. And you get the impression here that neither Orpah nor Ruth had any children, which to a Jewish girl would have been viewed as a judgment of God, the barren womb. Now, we know today that's not the case. Some women are not able to conceive. But in that culture, okay, it was viewed as a curse. It was viewed as God withholding children. And they needed a child so that the family's name could go on. This was important. This is so, uh, such a critical idea. The name had to be preserved. But then we get to verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return. Return is a key word in this chapter. It occurs 12 times at least. Carries with it the idea of, of repenting. That's what it means to repent. It means to change your mind, to turn around, to do a 180, to go the right way. And, and the fact that she arose, it speaks of her resolve. She resolved. She made a conscious decision to go back. She arose with her daughter-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. 
For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord, this is Jehovah, notice she refers to him as Jehovah, the covenant name of God. Whenever you see Lord in all caps there, that's Jehovah, Yahweh, yod heh four consonants in Hebrew. There's no vowels. How that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Now there's bread in Bethlehem. Praise God. And the fact that she said God had visited them shows that she believed that the bread came as a result of God's intervention. Okay? So let's don't be too hard on Naomi. It's real hard. Uh, when, you, when you read these stories, to, to, it's real easy, rather, to beat them up and say, well, look what they did. They made bad decisions. They've been in the land of Moab. But, but I've learned this over the years. Be careful how you treat people that have been broken. These people have been crushed. Now, up until this point, up until this point, there's been no dialogue. And there's not been a whole lot of lead up to it. It's just there's a famine. This guy dies. This guy dies. This guy dies. And now we got three widows who not only are in a strange land, but they don't have any means of income. What are they going to do? So she hears that God had visited the people in giving them bread. So in verse 7, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was. You know, if you're ever going to get out of the mess that you're in, you've got to get out of the place where you is and go place to the place where God's blessing. There's a lot of folks that have gotten out of church because they've gotten bitter about something. They're not living in sin necessarily, but somebody hurt their feelings. I'm going to tell you this right off the bat. This is the easiest place in the world to get your feelings hurt. Not Deep Springs, but the church. You know why? Because our level of expectation is higher, right? We expect Christian people to, to live better. But how many of you know Christian people still do dumb things, carnal things, sinful things? Now, I don't, cause, and Lori will be, she'll attest to that, but, but the rest of y'all, <laughs> look at her biting her tongue. I see blood coming out of the side of your mouth. <laughs> we do, right? And we hurt people's feelings, and a lot of times we don't even mean to. You know, like Peter, in a moment of weakness, the devil will just seize our tongue, you know? And, the, and Jesus will look at us and say, get behind me, Satan. You're not saying the right thing. She returns. They went on their way to return, again, there's that word, to the land of Judah. Verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. That's interesting. Usually it's go to your father's house, right? That's how you usually read it. That's normally where you would return is to your father's house. But the, the, everything I've read said the fact that they mentioned the mother is that Naomi is saying... She hopes they get married again. That's, that's the implication. That's the reason she phrases that way. And she says, Jehovah, deal kindly with you. Now, the word kindly here is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. It's translated loving kindness, kindly, kindness, mercy. It's not, you can't narrowly define the word. And it doesn't just uh, apply to God's love, but people's love, people who showed mercy. She says, God... Deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead, meaning her two sons, and with me. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law don't have the typical American mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. Most of the time we say mother-in-law and your blood, your blood pressure goes up, right? Nobody say, no, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> don't you get me in trouble, preacher. But, but typically, and there's all kinds of jokes about mothers-in-law, right? Because, or mother-in-laws. 
because of that dynamic there. But, but that's not present in this story. In this story, there's a deep love between these, these three. You know, when you go through hard times together, it'll do something. You know, it'll forge a relationship when you go through things together. In a marriage, some people, they want to give up at the first sign of trouble, you know. But if you'll stick together and go through some stuff, you'll find out, hey, we made it through this. Honey, we can make it through the next thing. Ain't that right, Lori? She's like, I don't know. You keep talking that junk. You go through hard times together, you can make it. We can weather some storms together. A faith that's not tested can't be trusted. The Lord, verse 9, Jehovah grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So again, she expresses her wish for them to get remarried. Then she kissed them, Naomi kisses them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And I don't believe this was just a play here. I don't believe this was, I believe this was, this was genuine sorrow. They've, got, they've both been crushed. They've all, three of them have been crushed. And now she's trying to get them to leave. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with you unto your people. Then verse 11, Naomi says, Turn again to my daughters. Notice she calls them her daughters. Who, why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons... Would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of Jehovah has gone out against me. Wow. Let's go to the next slide. Now, what Naomi is referring to is the law of the leveret marriage. And I know that might be kind of hard to see for you guys in the back because it's hard for me to see. So I'm going to read it off my notes. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. God's word says, If brothers dwell together and one of them die and have no child... The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife. And shall perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. I know that sounds strange to us, but that was a way of preserving the, the, the name of the deceased man. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed the name of the brother which is dead. That his name be not put out of Israel. So it's again for his progeny, for preserving the name of the, of the man. In his household. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel, and he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him, and shall speak unto him, and shall stand, and he, if he shall stand to it, and say, I like not to take her. Now look at this. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders. Loose his shoe from off of his foot and spit in his face. Did you know that was in the Bible? Yeah. And shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, The house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Okay. Now if I tell you my shoe is loose, I'm not going to bear any real reproach over that. I just need to tie my shoes. But back in that day, if you were the dude that had the shoe loosed, you're scum. Because you are not taking care of your brother's good name. Okay? And this is going to loom large here too in subsequent weeks. We'll, we'll get into that as we, as we go. But that's what this is all about. And, and, and Naomi is saying, look, even if, I, even if I got on Farmers Only tonight and I got me a new man, 
And we, uh, I haven't been on that website. I just, I like to joke about it when the commercials come on. But, you know, even if I get a, a, a new woman, excuse me, a new man, and, uh, and we have a baby tonight, we conceive. Are you going to wait 20 years for this kid to grow up so that you can have another husband? No, it's not feasible. And it grieved her much, she says, that the hand of God. Notice how Naomi views everything. She said, God is against me. You might feel like that today. Sometimes we go through so much hardship in our lives, and, and it's hard not to, to think, well, God, what are you doing? Lord, why are you allowing me to go through these things? And they lifted up their voice and wept again. Now, this time, it says, Orpah kissed Naomi. Now, remember before, Naomi kissed her goodbye, kissed him. Now, Orpah kisses her goodbye. It's a goodbye kiss. And, and Orpah, by the way, at this point, she disappears from the story and from history. But the Bible says that Ruth did what? She clave unto her. This is the same word where it says in the book of Genesis that and Adam and Eve... Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father and shall be cleaved, cleave unto his wife. It means to stick like glue. Ruth says, I'm going to stick like glue with you, Naomi. And she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back into her people and into her gods. This God's plural. The word is Elohim. Elohim is plural. And the context determines whether it's talking about the God of the Bible or the gods, you know, of, of the heathen. And by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean that Orpah went back to idol worship, but just that she went back to the realm of Chemosh. You know, she's there where they worship Chemosh. But Ruth Claven her, he says, return after your sister-in-law. But now, Ruth says in verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to return from following after you. Now, this is one of the most famous passages in all the book of Ruth. People use it in their weddings and stuff. And, uh, interestingly enough, you never hear a bride reciting these vows to her mother-in-law or her future mother-in-law at the wedding. But notice the words she says. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God... My God. Not Kamash, Jehovah. Where you die, I will die. Wow. But you know she doesn't stop there. She goes one more step. And she says, and there will I be buried. I wondered if there was any significance to this as I was reading and studying this week. And here's what I could ascertain. Not only was Ruth saying, I'm going to go die with you. But she said, I'm going to be buried with you. Which means, I'm going to rise with you. <laughs> and we're going to heaven together. Glory to God. And the Lord, notice Naomi calls the Lord Jehovah here in verse 17. A conversion has taken place. She doesn't just refer to him as El Elyon or El Shaddai or God. But Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. She says, Jehovah do so to me and more also if all but death part you and me. She takes a death oath. This is about the most solemn. And this happens, by the way, in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, 
Saul does it with Jonathan and Jonathan with David. And I mean, it's serious business. And apparently, her conviction was convincing because notice in verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, there was no more discussion. She left off talking with her. Now, it doesn't mean that she gave her the silent treatment. It just means that she understood that Naomi, that Ruth was serious, that she loved her and loved God. All right. Bitter in Bethlehem. This is good. Don't, don't leave me now. Please don't leave me now. Verse 19. So they too went until they came into the house of bread, Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved, stirred, shaken about them. And they said, is this Naomi? Is this the one that left 10 years ago? I wonder if she looked a little different. How many of you know when you go through a really hard time, it'll change even your physical appearance? I look at some people sometimes and, and I think, wow, they look like they have, they've aged. And then I look in the mirror and I say, yeah, that's happening to me too. It's amazing when you go through. Now, I want you to understand something about Ruth. I want you to understand something. I don't need to make this point. I really, really need to make this point. Ruth, when she made this pledge to Naomi, here's what she was doing. She was for, Remember, she's a Moabitess. Are the Israelites going to marry Moabites? Well, they're not supposed to. What are the prospects of Ruth getting a husband in Israel, in Bethlehem? Not good, right? <laughs> not good. So what she's saying is, Naomi, I give up my life as a wife. Now, Orpah chose to be a wife, and we don't condemn her for that. And for all we know, she went on to worship the Lord, and maybe she converted whoever she married. I don't know. We're not going to condemn her because the Bible's silent. But Ruth says, I'm giving up the role of a wife in exchange for the role of a caregiver. Because after all, Naomi is destitute. She's going to need somebody to take care of. There's no greater ministry, I believe, in this world other than the gospel ministry than that of a caregiver and a caretaker. And if you've ever been in the role of a caretaker or a caregiver, you know that it is a 24-7 endeavor. And all of your agendas and everything else is set aside and willingly, for those that love the ones they're caring for, for the benefit and the good of that other person. And I would say that we are no more uh, like Jesus Christ than when we are exercising that kindness that Ruth did to exchange. She exchanged a future as a wife as a future for a caregiver. And Naomi, they said, is this her? Is this the same one that left 10 years ago? She looks different. Be very careful how you handle broken people. There's an old adage that says hurting people hurt people. A lot of times people are mean and they're, they're difficult because they're going through difficult times themselves. And I don't excuse bad behavior. 
But sometimes I go through the line at, in a store and nothing grinds my gears worse than somebody being rude in a customer service position. I hate it because I was a customer service manager for years and I drilled it into people. I don't care what kind of day you're having, be nice to people. And so there's nothing that gets me, Mark, you know about it. You're a manager, deal with the public all the time and, and, and share it with the post office all those years. Dear Lord, you deserve a purple heart <laughs> doing that. I spend about 10 minutes in the post office. And I think, how did Sherry do it all these years? How does she do it? Dealing with the public's rough. But listen, that person in the store that's, that's not being real nice to you, maybe, just maybe, they have had their world shattered that morning. You don't know. You know, for some people, it's all they can do to put their makeup on and get their clothes on and just go out and just try to, you know, just try to function in the world. And so don't be so hard on folks who are going through a hard time. It's been a difficult lesson for me as a pastor to learn, but I'm learning the value of not trying to give everybody advice and just loving on people and hugging them. Notice what Naomi says, however. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. But call me what? Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She's bitter. But in her bitterness... She's still worshiping God in a way. She's still got a theological, uh, a healthy theology. Now, what's going to happen in verses 20 and 21 is what we call a chiasm. Notice you have two names for God. You have Almighty, Lord, Lord, and Almighty. That's a chiasm. A-B-B-A is a literary structure. You've got Almighty, Lord, Lord, Almighty. Okay. Now, we know Lord is Jehovah. We know that's the covenant-keeping name of God. But what about Almighty? Well, I did some research on Almighty. The Hebrew word is Shaddai. You might have heard an Amy Grant song, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. I love that song. Uh, it carries with it the connotation of a nursing, a, breast, a, 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 a breasted one nursing, uh, someone nursing, an all-sufficient God. But the, the title Almighty or Shaddai... It speaks of power, power of God to dispose as he sees fit. You know, the almighty God can intervene as he sees fit. Now, the word Shaddai, check this out. It's used 48 times in the Old Testament. 48 times. 31 of those, however, occur in one book. Anybody want to take a guess what book that is in the Old Testament? It's the oldest book of the Bible, by the way. It's not Genesis. Job. Job, God is referred to as the Almighty, Shaddai, 31 times in Job. What do we know about Job? Job was doing his best, because he didn't have the book of Job like we do. We knew the beginning and the ending of it. Job was doing his best. To make sense of all the difficult things that were happening in his life. And all he could think about was, God, you're all powerful. You're almighty. You could intervene if you wanted to. Why are you not doing it? Can I ask you an honest question? Have you ever thought those thoughts? God, it would be nothing for you to answer this prayer. Right? God could speak the worlds into existence. God, it would be nothing for you today to heal my body. It would be nothing for you today to remove this 
ill circumstance for my life. It will be nothing for you to change my station in this life. Because you're almighty, you're Shaddai. And that's where I believe Naomi is. She's bitter, but like Job, she is remaining in her integrity. She knows that Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the only option she's got. Let me tell you this. When God's all you got, you'll figure out he's all you need. You don't need anybody else. You don't need to lean on the arm of flesh. She says, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Now, I want you to notice in verse 21, and we're almost closing here, so, so don't, don't leave me. Notice how suffering and bitterness will completely skew our perspective on life. She said, I went out full. Well, really? They left because there was a famine. Now, she was full in the sense that she had a husband. You know, she had a way of providing. But she went out full, but Jehovah has brought me back home empty. Is that what your Bible says? All right. Now put yourself in Ruth's shoes for just a minute. Ruth, Ruth and Naomi have traveled back to Bethlehem, and this is no easy hike. Do you realize it's about a 75-mile journey, and they didn't have Chevrolets and, and Hyundais back then. It was a 75-mile journey, and it was not simple terrain. To go from the Moabite highlands down was about a 4,500-foot descent, which is about a mile. That's a, that's a big change in altitude. And then it was about another 3,500 up the ascent to Bethlehem. So, so here, Ruth has, has left everything again to follow Naomi. And she gets there. And I can just imagine, and here Ruth is in a place that she's never been before, and she doesn't know anybody. And oh, by the way, according to the law, everybody needs to shun her because she's a Moabite. And Naomi is standing here with Ruth probably within earshot. And, and Naomi says, I got nothing. I went away full, but I came back empty. Is Naomi empty? No, 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 no. She's got Ruth, which is gonna, she's going to find out is better to her than ten sons. Would to God we all had a friend like Ruth. Let me tell you what, I don't care what you're going through. If you've got one good friend, you're blessed. If you've got one person that can care about you, that'll pray for you, that'll listen to you when they've heard you tell the same story a hundred times before. Because we tend to do that, don't we? We like to get on the phone and tell that same old, beat that same drum. If you've got a friend that'll listen to your, that'll laugh at your jokes that they've heard before, by the way, thank you. <laughs> Go ahead and throw that in there. You're blessed. See, Naomi was so in such a prison of bitterness, she couldn't see the blessing right there in front of her. And what she didn't realize is that right beside of her, is this lady that's going to help her become the ancestor of the Messiah. Woo! Things are about to change. But she says, The Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. 
Shaddai has afflicted me. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth, and just for good measure, we throw in the fact that she's a Moabitess, just in case we didn't get that fact already. The author is telling us here, here is a lady who's left everything, who's an outcast, who's a stranger in a strange land, who has left all the familiar surroundings to show hesed kindness to her mother-in-law. They returned out of the country of Moab. There's that word returned again. They're going in the right direction now. And they came to Bethlehem not just any time, but in the time of the barley harvest, mm. which is the month of Abib, Nisan. That's the month Jesus died. It's the month of the, the spring feast cycle, spring cycle of the feast, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. This story started with a famine. But when we get to the end of the chapter, there's a harvest. The story starts with three funerals. How do you think it's going to end? With a wedding, maybe? Stay tuned. The best is yet to come. But in the midst of all of this heartache, in the midst of all this heartache, in the midst of all of this despair and anguish and bitterness, we get the first hint because they arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. We get this glimmer of hope. The clouds are parting that things are about to change. That the thing you thought was for your destruction is going to actually end up being for your good. The thing that you thought was going to destroy you, the thing that you thought was going to be your end is actually going to be a new beginning. This is the hint the Holy Spirit gives us in this wonderful book, this, this elegant love story, that things are about to change. Can I say this to you this morning? I don't know what you're going through, but God does. God does. Gina and Tao sang about that this morning. God cares for you. The Bible says we can cast all of our care on him because he cares for us. You may be here this morning. Let's go to the last slide here just for... Here's some, here's some takeaways. We see, number one, the virtue of, of hesed, human loyalty. Shuv is returned back to God. And here's our takeaway. When God is at work, even bitter and hopelessness can be the beginning of something good. You need to develop a Romans 8, 28 theology if you don't already. It's the providence of God. And Paul says, for we know... That all things, that means the good, the bad, the ugly, the hateful, the bitter, the disappointing. Life is full of disappointment. I'm sorry to break that news to you, but it's full of disappointment. You know, it's interesting. We do everything we can to try to draw a crowd, don't we? You listen to the TV preachers, and they say, well, if you just come to Christ, everything's going to be hunky-dory. No more problems. If you just have enough faith, you can overcome every mountain you can bypass. You, you know what? What really gets me in this story, and I know I'll, I'll hush, I promise, is that Naomi is doing, she's a terrible evangelist, right? 
All she talks about is how God has done terrible things to her. And she's trying to talk uh, Ruth and Orpah into going back to the land of Chemosh. She's doing everything she can to give God some bad PR. And yet Ruth looks at her and says, you know what? Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God's going to be my God. So that tells me we don't, we don't have to water down the gospel to get folks to get saved. We can just preach the truth. Like Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And he'll have treasure in heaven. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, We know that all things work together for good to those that love God and to those that are the called according to his purpose. If you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are outside looking in. You can hold, lay no claim to the promises. And if you die without Christ, you will spend eternity in hell eventually in a, a, the lake of fire estranged from God but here is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ this is the message of salvation that God sent his only begotten son into the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life the Bible says whosoever shall call upon him the name of the Lord shall be saved we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God every one of us in this room nobody's born saved born with a halo we are born into sin we have a sin nature We've all fallen short. But God has made the provision for us. And as we're going to get to, like Joanna was singing earlier, we're going to talk about this Redeemer. You know, if you don't read the book of Ruth, Revelation 5 won't make any sense to you. Revelation 5 speaks of the, the one who's worthy to unloose the seals because he's redeemed us to God out of every kindred and every tribe and every nation. And that's, that comes right out of Ruth, the, the, the concept of a kinsman Redeemer. You have one who was not only able, but who was willing to pay the price for you. Jesus Christ came willingly. The cross was not a tragedy. The cross was a triumph. The cross was an accomplishment. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the Bible says if you put your faith and your trust in him, you can be saved. You will be saved. Would you stand? If you don't know Christ... The sand in the hourglass is running out. Come to this altar. You don't have to join the church. You don't have to go through any rituals. Just plead, cast yourself on the mercies of God. That's all Ruth did. Ruth had no promise of any future blessing. She had nothing to go on. She, her and Naomi both, they come to Bethlehem with nothing but the mercies of God and the integrity of Jehovah. And you know what? If you'll exercise that same faith they did, You'll find, too, that you won't be disappointed. Whosoever believeth in him shall not be confounded or ashamed. If you're here and you're discouraged today, there may be one here today and you're in bitterness of soul because things didn't work out like you had hoped they would or that you had thought they would. And I'm here to tell you, if you love God and you love the Lord, he has not forsaken you, he has not abandoned you, and ultimately he will work everything out for your good. If you need anything from the Lord, this altar is open. Would you come?